Thanks for joining us today. We're going to get started. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Real Emergency Vodcast. This is actually part two because we started this adult gunshot wound case in our third episode and it was so chock full of clinical pearls and uh, operational wisdom, we needed to keep going with it and keep reviewing it. So if you haven't had a chance, go back to our YouTube channel and uh, see part one for even more awesomeness. Also, mark your calendars. Our next episode will be on September 2nd at 2 p.m. Eastern, a bit of a change in time to accommodate everyone. Uh, we'll put that out on social media so you can register as soon as we get it up. A bit about the Real Emergency Vodcast. Real Emergency is produced in partnership with Hantevi, Real DX, and 410 Medical. It is powered by Prodigy EMS. I am Hillary Gates, Director of Educational Strategy for Prodigy EMS. All of our episodes are available available uh, for CAPSI credit on Prodigy EMS. Those of you who are watching live today, at the end of the presentation, you can scan a QR code and earn your free CE for today's episode from Prodigy EMS. Check us out on your favorite podcast platform where we have an audio version of the vodcast and on the Real Emergency social media channels on Facebook and Twitter. Let me briefly introduce our three experts. Um, Mark will show us uh, their images there on a slide. David Spiro is a pediatric emergency physician and professor at University of Arkansas Medical System. He felt so strongly about authentic education that he found a way to get videos to the market of real live cases. And he founded Real DX for that reason. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, an EMS physician, and founder of Pediatric Emergency Standards Incorporated, and he is the inventor of the Hantevi system. He serves as the medical director for numerous agencies in Florida and is the lead pediatric EMS specialist for the Eagles. Mark Peel is a pediatric intensivist at WakeMed in Raleigh, North Carolina, and is a medical director with WakeMed Mobile Critical Care. He is also the founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical Innovation, a company focused on improving resuscitation in shock and sepsis. We also are excited to have three special guests joining us today who will be chiming in with their experiences and expertise surrounding the procedures and protocols that you're going to see today. They're all from Texas agencies, which says something about Texas. I'm not sure what, but it's probably good. Um, first is Zach Dunlap, the critical care manager from Cypress Creek EMS in Houston. And uh, the case that you see today is from his agency. Tyrone Philogene is a paramedic from Montgomery County Hospital District EMS, also in Houston. And Stephen Rahm is a paramedic and works at the Center for Emergency Health Sciences near San Antonio. Some tips for watching today. We really want to hear from you. We want you to weigh in. The panelists will ask for your feedback and feel free to use your mic to chime in. This, this is a, an all comers um, event. You can also write questions in the chat and we may actually ask you to share those verbally. So onto the case, everyone. Uh, Mark, we'll start with a quick review of what we uh, spoke about last time, and then we'll focus on two really incredible high acuity procedures, one that you do uh, more often than the other. One is uh, intubation, but we'll start today with talking about the finger thoracostomy. Mark, Peter, and David, it's all yours. Thanks, Hillary. Um, it's great to be here, and I'm excited about this, sharing this case again. Just a quick review, if you weren't here last time, we have the privilege of 
um, being able to view a paramedic body-worn camera footage of a trauma resuscitation um, out of Cypress Creek, thanks to Zach, and uh, we have permission from this patient um, and the agency to share the video that we have here. Uh, and it just is one of the greatest teaching um, pieces of uh, video that I've seen in terms of trauma resuscitation. So to set, set it up, the uh, case is of a home invasion, we believe, with a gunshot wound, and paramedics have arrived on the scene to begin to stabilize the patient, and the supervisor's truck arrives shortly thereafter to bring blood to the scene, and we will um, observe kind of how they initially assess and stabilize uh, this patient and then kind of go through some of the procedures that we're observing. We had so many questions last time about several procedures. We thought we would do a second episode and give a little more time, bring in some extra expertise on how these things were done, when to choose to do them, and how to do them best. Um, quick uh, note on our learning objectives. We're going to review the initial assessment and management of hemorrhagic shock due to trauma. We're going to talk about the indications for and to some extent the uh, um, actual procedure of finger thoracostomy, when and how, and bring in some opinions on that, and then review principles of airway management and trauma, particularly the resuscitation before intubation approach to airway management. So let me dive right into the video. Uh, we'll, we'll go through the initial minute or so and stop and take any questions from the field and comments from our from our panel. So we have an infant here. Uh, uh huh. Going through. He has lung sounds. Blood pressure is 55 over 62. Okay. Should you see how oh. what I'm thinking? I'm dying. With the way that the oh. gun, the gunshot wound is. Uh huh. Please, please. A gunshot wound and the patient saying I'm dying it's just it's just a dramatic scene and we know there's hemodynamic instability setting in any thoughts here before we before we progress further David Peter anybody I, I was actually curious because I, I was a paramedic it's been a while back and I I always say this but I actually really mean it that I'm incredibly honored to work with paramedics because you guys, I'm, a, I'm an ER doc, but you guys are really on the front line, and uh, it's, it's such an honor to work with y'all. I'm just curious, like, with, with what are you thinking when you even walk into a scene like this? Like, what are you thinking? What is your anticipatory guidance as you're walking into this, and what are you thinking even before even that general appearance? It's not a trick question. Like, what are you actually thinking about? Tyrone, Zach? Stephen, like, what are you thinking about as you're walking into the scene? Like, what are you thinking? So you think I think scene safety. Um, like, what what what's going through your mind? So for sure, uh, I think scene safety is on the forefront. Um, you want to obviously make sure that you and the crew are safe. Um, and fortunately, we're very lucky that law enforcement will secure the scene and clear a stand will stage these kind of calls at first, just to ensure that everyone um, is safe. Um, but in my mind, going to this call, I'm thinking about. Um, how many, like how many gunshot wounds are there, major, uh, major injuries, um, organ damage, what has been hit. Um, and then I would start going down the line of like, what are my priorities? Um, 
and trying to get things in order so that when I do get there, I have a plan. Obviously, those plans do change. Um, so you have to be very flexible, but you want to have some sort of a plan so that when you get there, you're not completely blank and you're not off guard. Um, and so you can obviously treat the patient in the best way possible. And when, you, when you're called to the scene, is the vast majority of time law enforcement there? Uh, and, or or is there, are there moments where EMS arrives before law enforcement and that scene safety issue becomes important or is almost all the time law enforcement there? So in Montgomery County, um, as I may be talking only from Montgomery County, uh, law enforcement is always there first. However, that is only if it does get dispatched as a gunshot um, wound. Sometimes people don't want to have full disclosure when they call 911. And some people know that EMS is going to stage and it's going to take a little bit longer for us to get to the patient. So sometimes people do kind of tell a little lie and say, oh, it's just for chest pain or something. And you get there and then you're very caught off guard because you thought you were having a chest pain patient and that this patient has now in fact been shot. Um, so those are this, that would be the only time really in Montgomery County where we don't stage um, for things that are not fully disclosed to the 911 operator. I would chime in here, and I, I agree with Tyrone. It's basically the way it works in our agency. We get dispatched for a shooting, then that's automatically going to be a, a law enforcement scene response, and we're going to stage um, in a safe area. But, you know, that chest pain could be my chest hurts because I have a, a, a hole of a nine millimeter in it. So one of my thinking as a paramedic when I walk into the scene, first thing is I'm, I'm walking into it with an open mind. And that open mind is telling me that anything is possible here. So what I don't want to do is I don't want to see the first injury and anchor onto that and to think that this must be the only injury the patient has. So in my mind, I'm thinking I'm just going to march this patient. And for those of you that aren't familiar with March, it's ingrained in the brains of our military, massive hemorrhage, airway, respiration, circulation, hypothermia. What do I need to do right now? on the scene or on the X, if you will, to prevent this guy from arresting or getting close to arrest. But at the same time, I have to make sure that I find every hole and that I need leave no stone unturned. And, and I think we're all, we're really attuned to doing that. I mean, obviously I see a lot of stuff in the, in the chat box about scene safety. Obviously, is it safe for me to be there? Am I gonna become a casualty? Otherwise I'm going to it with an open mind and I'm just marching my patient, if that makes any sense to you. Zach, do you want to give any comments on the on the scene safety in this specific case to the extent you know it? I was just going to comment and say, obviously, the same thing is here in cybersecurity. The, the police department will secure the scene and they will um, make sure that we, you know, they, they've taken care of everything and then they clear us in. And then once we get in, um, I was going to actually say exactly what, what Mr. Rahm said is March is what we teach. Um, the two other things I would add that we're thinking about is, is do I need blood? Where's the blood coming from? Is, my, is it my closest supervisor? Um, do they have an extended ETA? Or are they going to be on scene when we are? And then I, I, we try to teach our people, as soon as I get there and I know the patient needs blood, I tell the supervisor, hey, bring your blood to the patient. So that way they don't show up. Uh, maybe they don't know how bad it is or if they need it initially, and then they're having to go back to their vehicle. And the second thing is just my, my resources as far as where am I taking this patient? So where this patient was located, um, the closest trauma center, uh, you know, level, level two, level three trauma centers are 20, 25 minutes by ground. Um, or can I, do I need to land the helicopter right here to get them down to the level one? So those are the other things that we, that are unique to us that we think about. Mark, Mark and David, I want to, I want to pop in here and I, I have a couple of questions uh, on the March that you're talking about. Um, and you're talking here about massive hemorrhage airway respirations followed by circulation. 
This is a topic that I would love to explore here uh, today. And I think that the video demonstrates the amazing sequence that you did go through here to save this guy's life. So uh, I think we should focus on that, number one. The second thing is for the people on this call who don't have blood, and some of my agencies have blood and some of them don't have blood. When you see the patient, you make the assessment, you know he's hemorrhaging, his blood pressure is, is that of an infant, and you know that all you have is Kool-Aid, uh, or you know, not, not even, right, water, uh, to give this patient. You know, um, Zach, is your mindset now different coming in that, hey, we have what it takes to do the initial uh, triage, if you will, the initial treatment um, before we start to move this guy? What's your frame of mind now knowing that you have something to uh, at least mitigate the, the actual death that would have happened in within minutes for this gentleman? I think it's a, it's a fine line because sometimes when you have too many things, you can sit on scene and wait too long when ultimately the guy needs a surgeon. Um, it's great that we have the tool, but we, we need to keep in mind to still be moving and get them to, to definitive care and where they need to be. Now, does that mean that we may take a little bit more time to bring the, the ER type care to the patient? Absolutely, because I, I, we always tell people that they need a trauma surgeon, but the trauma surgeon can't fix dead either. So we may take a little more time to resuscitate with blood, get an airway, especially if they're going to be able, a candidate to go directly to the OR uh, versus just scoop and go, because we do have the, the extra resources that a lot of places don't. Right. And so uh, before I pass it back to you, Mark, I, I want to say that as people listen to this, understand that there's still a time crunch, Right. And there, there are more things that now they're being asked to do. And some people will talk about ultrasound here in a minute. And so there is a very fine line and doing it the right way. And just the acronym March is beautiful because you yeah, got to do it quickly. So uh, yep. Stephen and, and Zach and Ty, thanks for that. Mark, back to you. And you'll see how they progress through this. That there isn't a massive hemorrhage that's controllable by anyone on this scene, as Zach mentioned. It's, it's internal. But the airway management and uh, addressing the circulation almost simultaneously um, really prioritizing circulation is what you'll what you'll observe here. Um, one interesting observation from your paramedic Zach was she immediately said, "I hear breath sounds." She knows there's an entrance wound. She knows he's hypotensive, but she's assessed already that there's breath sounds on both sides, thinking that lung is up at least at that moment. And watch her observation of his mental status change now as we get into the ambulance. He's got crepitus under his left axilla. Feel this crepitus here? Yeah. So she sees the mental status has changed. He said, I'm dying. Please help me. And now he is much less responsive. What are we thinking now? That he's bleeding somewhere is, is my first thought. Anybody want to comment before we keep going? Yeah, if you, everybody will recall that when the paramedic gave report, um, we heard that there was a hole in his left arm, and that was the only hole that we heard about. So someone had mentioned earlier um, that, uh, what were we thinking when we got on scene, that they needed to also be aware of another shooter. Another thing to mm -hmm. think about is, or another victim rather, uh, another thing to think about would be uh, where are there other holes or other problems with the bullet that I can't see, and that's clearly what's happening here. So. Right. Um, Rita just talks about shock progressing rapidly, which is exactly what's happening. He's hemorrhaging. Now, now, Mark, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little bit and say that, you know, we, we know the case, right? 
We yes, know that good point. God's got a hole in his chest and we know he's got hemorrhage. Uh, but how many people here are potentially thinking maybe, hey, this guy's airway is is maybe the issue, maybe to maybe to tension, maybe I should address the airway first before I resuscitate this guy. So I think that um, we shouldn't just really assume that everybody just knows that this bullet went into his pulmonary artery, number one. And then the second thing is, um, if, you, if you listen to the surgeons, every bullet that goes in will find its way elsewhere, right? You've, you've even heard of people having a, a, a pulmonary embolus um, because of a bullet that ended up, you know, um, in, a, in a vessel, right? So um, I think that the, the assessment here is really critical and kudos to, to the team here for making just a high quality assessment in such rapid time. Absolutely. Let's watch a little more here and listen to what the voices in the background are saying are, are the priorities. Get your lines, get your blood. I've got a 16. Okay. Sounds good. Let's hook our blood in. Can you come over to the side? Blood's working. You need to get the IO in. Let's get him ready for intake. You ready for blood? All right. So just quickly, um, we, I cut out the part where the IV failed, but a 16 sounds like an awesome way to get blood into someone fast. And she put that in, but then it was not working. So the next move to IO. Any comments there on uh, priority of access, uh, Zach, in your agency um, or anyone else? Kind of what are your go-tos there? I mean, if, if, they've got, if they've got something sticking out, by all means, but a lot of these patients are so, um, you know, so clamped down. It's great to get a 14 or 16 in, but it's just not realistic the majority of the time. Yeah. They, I did... They, you know, they did end up doing a tibial IO in this patient just based off of where everyone is. But we ideally would like humeral head uh, IO first. That's what we that's what we teach. But sometimes it just doesn't always work that way. So you get what you can. Can someone speak to the humeral head IO and someone who has a chest injury? Is that should we be should we be wondering about whether that's right? Yeah, I'll, I'll comment that I had a patient like that where we we screwed it up, right? So. Uh, this is in, this is back in Pittsburgh, back in uh, nineteen, uh, sorry, two thousand and two. We had a kid shot uh, right uh, right at his clavicle. He walked in. Uh, he quickly started becoming uh, very aggressive towards us. Why? Because he's you know he was dying, and uh, we had the IV in the left arm, and we were ready to put him down, tube him, uh, and open him up. And he was still awake, fighting us. And someone said, "Oh shit." We have the IV in the left arm and all that's pouring into his left chest. So 100%, 100%, you really have to make that decision correctly uh, as to where that IV is going in. And so that it would, it would definitely be on the contralateral side if I had to say that. But going in the leg, I think you potentially even a bit Makes safer uh, than that. Yeah. And Zach, for those who were on last time, just give a quick minute, 30 seconds on how this blood got to be where it is. How, where did it come from? Who brought it? Uh, so our supervisors here at Cypress Creek carry uh, two units of O positive whole blood. So any type of uh, call that could require blood, such as a shooting, stabbing, um, MVC, they will be uh, dispatched to show up with the with the blood, um, as well as then our crews get on the scene and they realize, oh, this patient needs blood. It's worse than what you know, the dispatch notes were. Then they will request the supervisor to show up with it. So they carry the blood and the Quinflow to the to the ambulance. Great. And real question, do you, do you need to get medical and any kind of physician oversight or is it protocolized and you can just give it at paramedic discretion? That's correct. Pr paramedic discretion based off of our protocol. 
Great. All right, let's keep going. There you go. Holy crap. I, I'm watching this bag turn itself inside out. It's going so fast. When you start, uh, Mark, you want to stop that real quick? Yep. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just kind of let everyone know. I know that you don't want to talk about this publicly since you're the founder of this thing, but just let everyone know we use the the, the life flow. And the reason he said "holy crap" just so people know is because the blood was going in so darn fast uh, using the device. So uh, we're, you know, again, we we use it in, in my hospitals. We use it now in our in our helicopter and in our ground units for blood. Um, so I just wanted to explain why he was saying holy crap that was a good holy crap basically one, one interesting thing is you can watch the timestamp up in there it's about two right at two minutes to get that first 500 mils in he'll ultimately get two and a half i think during the course of this care this bag's empty all right sounds great we'll see what his pressure is uh, we're gonna probably all right so the provider you hear is saying we'll see what his pressure is volume's gone in He's thinking, I gotta, I gotta main, I've got to manage this guy's airway, but I want to know what the pressure is first. So, um, do you have any thresholds, Zach, uh, in your agency for pre-intubation, resuscitation, hypotension that you want to get uh, a number you want to get above before you intubate, or is it just kind of the thinking of this crew? We got to do something here before we intubate. It's, it's definitely the thinking of the crew. We don't have anything specific, but we do try to talk about, you know, getting a, a map over sixty-five. But it, it's it's not there's not a, a hard fast stop on that just based off of the the mechanism mechanism of injury with the patient, right? And we'll show some uh, data here. One of the yeah. two articles we'll share is just the prevalence of post intubation hypotension and its association with cardiac arrest and mortality if you've not achieved a normal blood pressure or near normal prior to intubating. Hey, can I ask a quick yeah. question? We, yeah. we talk about we talk about general appearance. Uh, and it's hard because this is a video, but the, the color of the patient looks quite off. And we've all sort of seen dead patients and uh, near dead patients. So it's just, Zach, is that this patient's color looks like he's quite pale and like almost like a lifeless color. Can you comment on that? Absolutely. Um, this patient specifically, they, they mentioned at some point in the video that how, how bad his color is. Um, now, I don't know if it ever returns, uh, the color ever improves throughout the resuscitation, um, but I had a, a very similar patient just a couple days ago that we noticed how bad his color was when we got there, and, and after resuscitation, intubation, his color improved dr drastically. So I think it's a huge sign. It's not really a vital sign, but a sign assessment tool to look for. I agree. Zach, Zach I have another question for you, another question here. So go, going back to, to, to the march that you mentioned a little earlier, Massive hemorrhage was first, circulation was fourth. Which one are you addressing right now when you're giving the blood first? I just, I, I wanna, I, this is a very fine point because you did it, you did it the right way, but I just wanna make, I wanna see in your mind, what, what are you treating right here with the blood? I think you're, you're addressing really all of it because the blood is, is um, you're improving the circulation. Um, you're not stopping the hemorrhage, but you're at least replacing some of what he's losing internally. Um, and then it's going to allow us to uh, fix his airway, which he needs as well. So I think it, the, the blood allows us to do all of those things simultaneously or really close together. Right, because I'm, I'm looking at a, a non the guy still has a non-rebreather. You know, Stephen also mentioned the, the, the MARCH uh, um, acronym earlier. So I just want to make sure that, so in other words, what you're saying is that you're not just looking for 
um, you know, massive hemorrhage at external, you, you recognize he's massively hemorrhaging internally and figured you have to address that before the airway, essentially, which is the right thing to do. What we're saying the I trauma patients, yeah, go ahead. Sorry about that, Zach. I think these guys, first of all, uh, Zach, awesome work by you and your team. Um, this was this was a great, this man would have died um, without uh, the expert help that you guys provide. So kudos to you. Makes me proud to be a paramedic. Um, I think what you guys are addressing here with this blood, I think you're addressing three things. I think you're addressing the massive hemorrhage. You're also addressing the circulation and, and you're also addressing an oxygenation problem. Mm -hmm. Because yes, yeah. the guy's losing volume, but with every drop of blood he's losing, he's losing oxygen carrying capacity. So I think there are three things that are being addressed simultaneously um, with the transfusion of that blood. Beautiful. Perfect. Great. Hey, Great let's move. Um, that's that's. Thank you, Steve. Um, super helpful. Let's move to on to the thoracostomy procedure because I know that's controversial and will generate a lot of discussion. So let's go through that and then we'll kind of open it up for comment comments. Five ketamine is given. Let's draw for suction. You ready for that? We'll get him innovated after we open his chest wall. You ready, Joe? Let me throw a cotton as he's done. Downward. There you go. Perfect. Good enough. All right. In. He'll pop. Okay. Yep. Pull apart. Hard. All right. Significant. Zach, I have a, a quick question for you. So, <clears throat> and I'm just curious. So, was did, was the thought of needle? Thoracentesis even um, even discussed, or was it? Hey, we need we need to go right to this 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 simple thoracostomy. In this case specifically, they did the thoracostomy in, instead of the needle. Um, we don't have a protocol that says you should do needle and then thoracostomy. We leave that up to the provider discretion. I have a, a great one where it's very similar to this patient. We do the needle, nothing out, no improvement, um, and we use the we use the spear here. Then we do the thoracostomy and we get as much, if not more blood than you just saw on this one. So it's a great, uh, great video to show the difference in the two when, when used simultaneously. But we also have had ones where we've used the needle first and ended up not going to thoracostomy because it did work. So I, 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 would, I wouldn't can give you a specific answer to say, hey, we've had luck with one versus the other. But I can tell you that without a doubt, the majority of our patients that we have used thoracostomy on um, where they have had a hemothorax, we've had good outcomes. We've seen improvement post-procedure. Great. Hey, why don't we bring in Ty um, from a neighboring county there who's have ex who has experience with thoracostomy in the field, and then we have a, actually some data from, from that agency we can share in a minute. Yeah, so um, watching the video, just like Zach said, um, we pretty much do the same thing. Um, we just do it for obviously traumatic arrests um, that are in arrest. Um, at this, this time, we don't do it for pending arrests. Um, it is written in the protocol that it has to be for an arrest. Um, however, discretion amongst the higher um, credential providers um, is a little different. Um, it used to, we started as a soup skill and then it's trickled down and now it's available for all in charges. Uh, just like Zach said, um, penetrating or blunt trauma known or suspected um, to the chest or abdomen um, is when we would perform this. Um, this is something that needs to happen pretty quickly. Um, but when I teach the skill and perform it, you know, I tell the providers, you need to slow down, take your time. Um, this is something that we call um, low frequency, high risk. Um, crews don't do this that often. Um, a crew, a one set crew would be lucky to do this once a year. 
Um, it happens across the district more often, but for specific individuals, not very often. So when people are doing this, you know, we teach people to slow down, take your time. There's a high chance of injury um, and infection to the provider. We're using a scalpel, you know, you need to be, take your time, but move in a, in a manner that is efficient. Um, we're lucky to have all of our uh, fire departments are uh, first responders, so they can handle the airway, put an eye gel in, um, start bagging the patient, um, and then your partner um, can start doing other things like getting access, but the in-charge and above should be doing this procedure pretty quickly and it should be the first thing that's done. Um, we've had good success with the procedure, um, just like Cypress Creek. Um, we've had good ROSC and discharges. Um, we actually even have um, somebody that works at the district that was involved in a um, incident was in traumatic arrest, the procedure was done, and now that person works for us, which is pretty awesome. Um, so uh, it's really cool to see that um, like play out that well, and you get to see somebody like can talk about their version of the events and um, from what they can remember what they know, um, which is pretty awesome. Um, but the main thing I think, you know, when I first did this, um, I've only been at the district for five and a half years. When I first did this five years ago, it is very daunting. It's something that is relatively new that not a lot of pre-hospital providers are doing. Um, and so, you know, it, you just got to slow down, think about what you're doing, find your anatomical landmarks. Um, and like I said before, take your time, but move in an efficient manner. Um, but it's not something that's taught in paramedic school. Uh, maybe now, but I don't think it is. It wasn't definitely when I went to paramedic school 10 years, like nine years ago. Um, and so it is, uh, something is very uh, daunting and very new. And you just got to slow down and uh, take your time, but it's pretty cool. Like, it's a very cool thing, especially when you get to see good results. Like in this patient, uh, that's awesome for the crew, you know, they did this procedure and they had a great outcome. Um, that may and probably wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago when this procedure wasn't there. So it's uh, pretty awesome. And it's awesome that they, we can watch the video right here and see, you know, a great learning tool, like you said, because this is not something that we get to see very often. You get to read in a book or get someone to talk about it, but actually getting to see it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And Mark, Mark, yeah, Peter. Uh, if, if I can comment on, you know, Ty's being very humble, so is Zach and, and, <laughs> and Steve, but they work with some great people, their departments. I mean, Hillary kind of joked at the outset about Texas. Here's the difference, right? Uh, Texas, like Florida, the, the, each agency kind of works independently and can do their own thing. That could be good. That could be great. That could be really, really bad. So as an example, I'm sure that before they rolled this out, they brought in the trauma surgeons. They spoke, they spoke to the people who they work at at the center. I mean, I brought in trauma surgeons. We trained everybody up. We made sure that they knew what we were doing. We had two hour sessions. We had videos, we had mannequins. This, is what, this wasn't something that we just said, hey, we saw that real vodcast thing and uh, we wanna go do uh, a thing with our costume. So just, uh, you know, so Ty and Zach and Steve, can, can you guys talk about uh, a little bit, I mean, because we're, you know, we're at the bottom of the hour here, but can you talk about a little bit how, how much of a lift was this to actually get this off the ground uh, for people who are listening today? Before we do that real quick, we had one question just on the procedure, Mark. Um, Tom Chavez asks, is there a risk for more secondary blood loss from the incision? Um, and are we only going to do a finger thoracostomy if there's whole blood available? Can you answer that real quick? And then we'll talk about the training. I don't know that I can answer it well. It, okay. I know there's a couple of docs on the line that I've seen come in who may want to open up and comment. 
who are doing this in the field. Um, I don't know. If I would say not, right. not from the incision. I would say not, not from the incision. Agreed. Well, yeah, maybe what, the one thing I wonder about is if there's active bleeding in the chest from a arterial laceration, for example, was it actually under essentially under tamponade in the closed chest? And therefore there's only so much space that the blood could accumulate and then stop. And then once you release it, could you potentially allow that bleed to happen um, again? Yeah. I don't know the answer yeah. to that. I wonder about it. Um, you do wonder, is needle thoracostomy probably the first line? However, there's a pretty high failure rate with, try, with attempting that. And so maybe in this situation, or particularly in an arrest situation, it may be better to go proceed straight to thoracostomy if you have the skill and have trained in it. Peter? I have heard that, that theory that you mentioned about whether if you're relieving the pressure, you're now going to cause more blood to come out. But uh, clearly, in this case, that wasn't the case. But I would love to hear from other people. I know Dave Miramontes. Uh, just join us. Hey, Dave. And I want to hear from Steve and Zach also. Yeah. With respect to, to so this. what kills patients is a tension hemothorax or a tension pneumothorax. There, so massive bleeding, lack of an airway, and tension hemo and tension pneumothorax kills patients dead. Yep. So you have to eliminate that. In our system, we get lots of practice with this because every blunt traumatic arrest patient, you're not dead till you have stopped massive bleeding, established a basic airway, and you're ventilating the patient, and you open both sides of the chest. Then and only then can you call the medical director for pronouncement because you have to take those the top three things that kill you out of the list, massive bleeding, airway, lack, no airway, and tension in thorax. And so I noticed some people say finger thoracostomy. Don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Buy them a set of Kellys, okay? Um, the most, my uh, fire-based system, I got Mongo, the big fireman. You can't get his finger between the ribs, okay? <laughs> you got to use an instrument because the other reason too is in, we do them in blunts because uh, you're going to get them cut, okay? Exactly. Bingo. And that's how we've done it. Uh, Peter brought up a great thing is we brought our trauma surgeons into this very early in the game. And we do a cadaver-based training. So Steve Rahm, who's, who's on this call, is the expert at teaching this. Okay, he teaches our guys 38 weeks out of the year, every Wednesday, we do this, this, this cadaver lab with two or three cadavers in the shop. So you got to practice, practice, practice. One of the biggest things we see, and you have to stress in training, is they go too low. So we teach them, grab the peck, and your little finger is where it goes, okay? So, whoop, boom, that's where you go, okay? And it's anterior. If you go back posteriorly, you're gonna get in latissimus and then you're a problem. So stay high, go big, or go home. <laughs> Steve, oh my, do you I wanna, love it. Steve, you wanna my, comment I mean, on your experience training folks, which you do nearly every day? Yeah, so if I was standing straight upright, like at attention, then my mid-axillary line is true to my armpit. But all of a sudden, I'm going to try to, to get sideways here. But if I'm laying down, my shoulders now drop. My internal anatomy didn't change, but my external anatomy did. So that means when my shoulders drop, my, my mid-axillary line actually shifts anterior. So that's why we often see um, not just instrument thoracostomies, but needle decompressions done laterally are way too low because people are following the mid-axillary line. That's fine if your patient is sitting up, but the moment they lay down, their shoulders are gonna drop. So if a patient's laying down, if you put your hand 
right on their shoulder, then you're already on the anterior axillary line right here, right? So, I mean, just lay your hand on their shoulder with the front of the back of the hand and you're on the anterior axillary. You'll find that the mid axillary line is now far more anterior to the true armpit. So, and we have had cases where, where medics have gone too low because they didn't take into account the shifting of the, the shoulders laying backwards and ended up severing the latissimus dorsi and never, never made it into the chest. So as Dr. Miramontes said, we just teach the armpit handshake. If I just grab my pectoralis muscle right here and I dig my pinky fingers in, where my pinky finger is, that's where my needle's gonna go, that's where a chest tube would go, and that's where an instrument's gonna go. And all three of those lines form essentially a triangle of safety. If I go below that on the left, I risk hitting the spleen, obviously on the right, I risk uh, hitting the liver. But the biggest training issue, Dr. Peel, is that when, when people are laying down, their external anatomy can be very misleading. So you're gonna to have to shift everything more anterior. Just come right off the top of the shoulder and then and you find the anterior axillary line every day of the week. So the risks are going too posterior, but also too caudad, I guess would be the, the proper term where you might get into the diaphragm, spleen, liver. So that's super dangerous. So staying up high enough where the nipple line would be and then anterior enough to get in and feel the ribbon pop over it. I think it's, and then, it's and then, not an easy procedure. Mark, I, I want to comment on Dave Miramontes' uh, comment. You know, everyone's looking at the middle picture when he says Kelly's, that's what he's talking about. And the, the third picture there on the right is what most people would say was after the Kelly, after you put the Kelly's in and you really spread them apart, you bring it out, right when you, right when you puncture and spread the Kelly's, you saw the blood will come out that you'll hear the rush of air sometimes if you're not in a helicopter and so forth. And so I do agree that the finger is not necessary uh, to do. Um, the one thing our surgeon did mention to us is uh, to make sure that you don't puncture yourself. And obviously that's a hard thing to do. Uh, the other, other good pearl here is to wear two, two sets of gloves um, because you, know, you, you wanna have the first set of gloves and then once you do the procedure, you just take that set of gloves off and now you have your, your regular set of gloves on. So that was another good pearl. Um, and then I, I wanna throw out to, to Steve and to uh, Dave and Mark and, and, and David, you know, you mentioned the airway, you mentioned uh, the finger, you mentioned the circulation. What about cardiac tamponade? There are some places I've heard around the country that will also needle the heart for cardiac tamponade. Is anyone out there doing that? And what, what, are, what are the cons, the pros of doing that while we're on procedures? The only agencies I've heard of doing that, Peter, are um, rural agencies, usually critical care, HEMS, um, if they have a long way to go and maybe don't have a, a way to fly, if they're going by ground. Um, I've heard of a few out in Colorado, but those are anecdotal. So my take on that is if you don't have ultrasound and people that are really good with ultrasound, uh -huh. that's a no-no. Okay. Because what happened is, is they're putting that needle in their blind and they're getting in the right, the left ventricle, the right ventricle. And they think, oh, I got blood. No, you're in the ventricle, you dork. Right? And it doesn't do anything. Okay. So right. <laughs> preview of coming attractions, not for prime time. My EMS fellows and our attendings are doing clamshell thoracotomies. Wow. So we... Wow. Yeah, we go all the way across, cut the sternum with trauma shears. We have firefighters pull back. We deliver it. We open the pericardium, deliver the heart. And then if we have a hilum tear, we twist the lung to clog it off. Wow. And then we hopefully we get pulses back. Who, and if who we have a heart injury. This guy? What's that? <laughs> who invited this guy? 
<laughs> yeah. Here. So we have one of our fellows have done three of them now in the field. Oh my um, God. And so with the clamshell, you know immediately, oh, the heart's trashed. We're done. You're dead. Okay. Or it's a hyalur injury and we twist that lung in the hilum. And then uh, we also can cross clamp the aorta posteriorly, which is hard to do uh, with the lateral approach. So we're going to publish it sometime, but not for paramedics. This is for board certified ER doctors that are doing this, but we do train in our body lab for our medics to assist with the procedure. So they know what's coming. So it's not like, oh my God, they open the chest, right? And flip out. So at least they've been exposed to it. And it's a great anatomy lesson for them too, because then they get to see the structures of the lung, the heart, the spleen, the diaphragm, and they get to see where stuff is in relation to the anterior axillary line. And um, it just helps reinforce the process. But not for medics. Are you bringing ultrasound Dave. in to assess for tamponade and hemothorax in that, or is it kind of empirically you're just doing it? I got to tell you, that's really hard to do yep. um, as a clinic, as a physician, yep. without that practices a lot. That's hard to do. Equipment. And what are you going to do if you've got a tear in the ventricle or a hole in the ventricle? Realistically, what are you doing? Right, that it, it's not going to help. David, we have seventy-seven people on this webinar. They all first came in here thinking there is no way I'm going to do a finger thoracotomy, and now they're all like. Making finger thoracotomy look like placing an IV after that. Holy cow. Okay. Uh, on to regularly scheduled programming. Mark. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go back. Um, quickly go back wow. to the kind of the airway management portion. Um, I wanted to point out the article that came out of Ty's agency where they, they actually looked at 57 patients over a four-year period of traumatic arrest. Um, they got a return of air, tension pneumo, and a third of those, and Rosk and a quarter, and a number of people were discharged neurologically intact after a traumatic arrest and a finger or a uh, field thoracostomy. So not huge numbers, but still pretty impressive. Um, so let's go quickly to the airway because we promised we'd get to that. Okay, yes. Well done, particularly the, the uh, resuscitation part. There's the thoracostomy, hemothorax drained. So doubly oxygenated, how about that? Looks good, right? Pre-oxygenating as much as possible. You're on to get him doubly oxygenated. I got two of them. Giving him 25 okay, academy. Okay, sounds good. Well, he's 96 on ours. That's um, okay. I just want to, I don't think he's got an oxygenation problem. I just know that when we intubate it, he'll rest. 99 over 6. That's the point I wanted to point out that was brilliantly stated. If he's not resuscitated, he's going to rest when he's intubated. Anyone want to comment on that? And they've gotten this pressure, by the way, at, at this point from 80-something uh, up to 99. Yeah, Mark, I'm, I'm going to mention the Jeff Jarvis uh, paper, Scott Weingart, um, essentially talking about resuscitating prior to uh, intubating. And if you look at DSI and, and Jeff's paper in DSI, um, it's very clear the reason for the delay in the DSI is so you give yourself three minutes in between the time that you give the ketamine and the time that you give the paralytic. The paralytic removes all the negative pressure. If you have no pressure, then you have, you know, you have no cardiac output and you die right on the spot. And so that three minutes is to maximize, maximize oxygenation, therefore the double oxygenation. And then, you know, we, we do the tower of power, as Jeff would say. And then we use fluids, blood, push pressure epi to ensure that we're going to get that person's pressure um, elevated, a, a, you know, a MAPA 65 or a systolic of 100 and so forth, whatever your agency uses. It is a must. And if you look at the patients 
who get paralyzed without having their pressure maximized, you will see a significant number of them die. And when I looked at my own data for RSI at a 34% death rate, after implementing this algorithm, Jeff Jarvis and so forth, zero. And again, numbers are small, about 32 patients in total, but uh, it's very, very important concept. And Peter, to be clear, you're talking about maximizing oxygenation, not as much resuscitating in a situation where no, you're no, shocked. No, 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 both, both. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an oxygenation thing and it's a blood pressure thing Good. prior to the, the, uh, the, the rock, we use rock, yeah. Anyone else want to comment? I'll, I'll speed through the rest of this here and then we'll we'll discuss at the end. Perfect. So we got another blood pressure going, 100 over 63. I am convinced that with the continued infusion of blood products that he will hopefully, and we can resolve his tension pneumo, he won't arrest. Another brilliant statement. Just every, the physiology has been fixed as best it can be and he will be able to be safely intubated, which some kind of sums it all up beautifully. Resuscitate before you intubate. Yeah, one more blood pressure. Yeah, right. 
Zach, I don't know about you, but when I first saw a salad, the thing that struck me the most, and you just said it, is that you park the the suction tube in the airway while you're still there with your blade. And that's something I don't I think most of us taught as paramedics, suction, take it out, now go in, right? But you're parking that thing in there so it keeps moving, just like you're at the dentist. Absolutely. I, and, and, and there's a, there's another major point that I never realized until I held the Ducanto catheter in my hand that it's angled just like you would if you're, you know, if you're looking with a blade, number one, plus it's got that toughness. So it allows you to maneuver the airway. So we are now using it when we place an eye gel even, right? So uh, how that catheter is made, the fact that it's not a yank cower, which is really made for thin secretions. This has a nice diameter to the tube. It'll suction anything. Uh, so just the actual principles of the, of the tube itself are as important as how, how it works. So great, great description, Zach. Thank you for that. Also, I, I noticed something funny on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, somebody threw out, how do you, how do you really pronounce yank hour in your agency? And most people put, I pronounce it decanto catheter. So I love, I love that decanto catheter. I really do. And, and to, to dovetail under what you were saying, Peter, the, the, the hyper angulation of it basically gives you a tongue blade and a suction catheter at the same time. Yeah. So you can kick the tongue out of the way, go down there and decon the airway, get down there and there's just blood pouring out and, and parking it. It, it is a game changer. It really is. Um, and, you know, we could all share stories of, of how intubations could have gone much poorly, but every intubation to us, as I, I'm sure it is to you, is going to be difficult until proven otherwise. Um, so the planning, the bougie, the, the salad, all of that stuff is just, it's absolutely critical. I like David. Uh, it's a dechunkulator. That's what he calls it. Dave Naramontes. David, man, you, you, you need a career in comedy. I think so. <laughs> I, Peter, I want to agree with you that it's a dual, it's dual purpose. So it's decontamination, but it, it's such a good tool to open the mouth. Sometimes it's difficult to get the video scope into the mouth properly. And if you can get that curved catheter, a Yankauer works not as well, but a Yankauer will work. And then just move the jaw forward. That blade slips in. You're at the airway. You have a much better view and a much cleaner view. And another uh, highlight I found from this video is that um, I think it was one of the, I think it was a doc there next to her is actually observing and coaching a little bit. And you, she has the benefit of someone watching two providers at one time, ensuring that that tube is in the right place. So I think the video's laryngoscope adds value there as well. Any other comments from anyone? Yeah, Mark, can you talk about the physiology of a trauma patient and the, and the uh, thoracic cavity? Because... Um, another thing as a paramedic, if I can speak for my friends here, is is thinking about what's going on physiologically in my patient as I'm uh, determining whether intubation is a good idea. And if I don't have blood or I don't have finger thoracostomy, um, there are a lot of things I need to be considering yes. with this patient versus uh, a medical arrest. I think Dr. Miramontes is more expert than I, but I'll take a stab at it. Um, number one, the meds you use may result in... Um, uh, some peripheral vasodilation, probably not with the ketamine at the dose they're giving, which was a low dose. But more importantly, the application of positive pressure into the chest when the central venous pressure is low. So the patient has bled a lot. There's mi they've minimized their venous return to the right atrium. You suddenly introduce a tube and positive pressure and you essentially exclude further venous return and result in uh, a cardiac arrest. I'm sure there's a number of mechanisms, but that's the one that kind of makes the most intuitive sense to me. And so we need to volume resuscitate, typically push dose press or something to get the venous return uh, adequate before we put that uh, breathing tube in. Dave, do you want to comment on that? The physiology of a, a peri-intubation arrest? 
Yeah, that is so true. And this is the whole basis of our rescue CPR system is that negative intrathoracic pressure creates that venous return. So you got to pump their fluids up um, and have that push dose, red, dose epi ready. Even, yes, we do use it in drama occasionally, right? It's kind of, uh, you know, blasphemy here so that you don't use meds and dramatic arrest. But yes, you may have to use it. Ketamine would be your drug of choice to put them down. And we have to also remember, if you've opened the chest, you now have to ventilate them. Yep. period, right? Whether they're awake and you open the chest, which we've done with some of our officers that are shot, you'll have to ventilate them because they cannot ventilate through a sucking chest wound. So all those are, are great points. Yep. So Hillary, the three mechanisms would be the meds themselves. And again, I, I know ketamine, uh, the dosing in the situation is somewhat controversial. Peter, I'd love to hear your input on that, but they gave, I think, a 25 milligram dose. And combination of that and his shock state, he was not aware. Number two, the negative inspiratory force of a spontaneously breathing patient is actually drawing blood into the chest and into the right atrium, right ventricle. And then three, as you apply positive pressure, um, you can actually precipitate arrest. And I think it's particularly relevant for a trauma patient and for an asthmatic. Should you ever have to intubate an asthmatic, they are augmenting their venous return with a huge negative inspiratory force, which you then take away with paralysis and introduce positive pressure in the chest. You can cause similarly cause a cardiac arrest in that situation. Mark, if so, throw in something oh, here. Ahead. So you just put a big hole in somebody's chest and you're having to ventilate them and, and just various case reviews that we've done um, for outside agencies. Some may feel inclined to cover that big wound that you just put on their chest. And if they're breathing okay on their own with negative pressure, maybe not as much of an issue, but when you're positive pressure ventilating them, they will tension back up and they will tend to lose their pulses on you. So you, they, they did the absolute, obviously the right thing. They didn't cover it up. They opened it up. They realized, hey, we need to ventilate this guy. Um, we don't want to just turn around and cause another tension pneumothorax. So that's, that's a, a, a thing that we've encountered with just various agencies is like, no, we put a hole in their chest, we get ROSC, we cover it back up, but you're still having to ventilate them. So you're just, you're just repeating the cycle again. Right. And th these are amazing points. I'm going to make another, another point of another type of patient and the EPIC TBI trial that came out of Arizona really, sh you know, shined a light on this one. Let's say it's not a, a finger thoracostomy, you're not giving blood, but you just had a traumatic TBI patient, traumatic brain injured patient and the patient is breathing, let's say 10 times a minute, um, and their SATs are 98%, and their end tidal is normal, um, but they have trismus, right? In my agency, I allow them to give ketamine, it relaxes the trismus, they're maintaining their own airway, they have their gag reflex intact, end tidal's fine, they're breathing 10 or more, blood pressure is good, we don't do anything after that. We don't, we don't start to aggressively take the airway because we know that every time we have a patient who loses the blood pressure or has a drop in blood pressure or a drop in O2 sat under, under 90, you have you know, up to 15 times greater morbidity and mortality based on that paper. So the whole thing of GCS less than eight intubate in all trauma patients needs to go away. Yeah. And you know, so we actually fall out of the, out of, out of the DSI uh, algorithm if the ketamine works and then we just drive to the hospital. So I think that's an important concept as well. Peter, thank you. Let me just wrap up with this last uh, bit of data I wanted to share, um, and then we can take a few final comments. Just the importance of resuscitating before intubation, which a lot of people have talked about. This is a study out of UPMC 
where they looked at a good number, thousands of patients intubated pre-hospital and looked at the incidence of complications if they had a hypotension prior to intubation. And um, the, I'm not going to do this article justice, but a lot did. A lot of patients had post-intubation hypotension. And the risk factors were elderly patients. A systolic under 130, interestingly, predicted post-intubation hypotension and SATs under 90. So optimizing, can't optimize age, obviously, but you can optimize blood pressure and SATs. And 5% of those patients who did have um, post-intubation hypotension had a cardiac arrest. So it's a big deal. We're not even talking about traumatic brain injury here in which one episode of hypotension um, will lead to increased mortality. So your point is well taken there, Peter. Any comments folks want to make on this? Speaking of Prodigy EMS, Rob Lawrence is on with us from uh, the great country of the United Kingdom. Uh, Rob, I don't know if you noticed we had a few other UKers on here. Um, Rob, tell us about uh, where we can find Real Emergency and, uh, and get ready for um, even more awesome learning in the future. Absolutely. So first of all, good evening from the United Kingdom. And if you are in the United Kingdom, uh, it's just coming up to uh, 7 p.m. here. Uh, and uh, I will be coming back to L.A. In a, in a week's time, by the way. Uh, but if you are on Twitter, please follow us at, at uh, Real Emergency. You can, you can find it there. Also, look out for us on Facebook. Uh, also, if you follow Prodigy EMS, you can also uh, link across to everything that's going on. So uh, please uh, follow us all. Please retweet what you've seen today, what you've heard today. And obviously keep up with us because we will keep you in the loop as to what's happening next. And so I'll see you next time from the U.S., Hillary. Wonderful, Rob. Can't wait to get you back on uh, back on our, our our planet over here. Listen, everyone. Uh, as I said, mark your calendars. Our next um, our next episode is. I'm putting it in the chat as I'm talking, so it'll be over there for you. September second uh, at uh, two p.m. Eastern. And uh, you know that these are recorded um, and again, available on Prodigy EMS for CE um, after the fact. So I'd like to thank everyone for joining us, especially our phenomenal guests, uh, Stephen Tyrone and Zach. And uh, with a special appearance by Dave Miramontes, again, I'm not sure who invited him, but um, he certainly made an impact. And uh, let's uh, think about getting Jim DeCanto on in the future. And I think we have some pretty cool um, ideas for uh, future episodes. Um, uh, sorry, just one last question. What issue of the pre-hospital journal um, post-intubation hypotension article was that from, Peter? Do you know? Yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put into the chat right now Got the it. link to, 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 my, uh, to my, my files for that. There we go. So that's, that's there. And then... Um, but I'm also going to do, you know, I, I think I think people should, and again, Steve, I don't know if I can volunteer you for this, but there are a lot of people out there thinking, hey, how do I do this? How do I get this done? Um, you know, I would say that there's, there's very robust training uh, out there and the people who know how to do it. Um, I've, I've created those videos, but I really think that it's got to be generated locally. But if anyone needs any of this information, just reach out to us. We're happy to share what we have. So uh, again, and uh, again, just I want a big shout out to uh, Dave Spiro, Mark Peel, Hillary and the gang and Prodigy EMS, you guys have been phenomenal. So thank you guys so much.